I'm standing at a street corner in New Orleans, Louisiana. If you haven't lived in New Orleans, you've probably never been to this particular corner before. I'm at the intersection of Basin Street and Iberville. The French Quarter is only a few blocks away, but there's not much going on around where I'm standing. Aside from a few people, the sidewalks are basically empty. Not that there's anywhere for them to go, except if their home was in the large condo complex that takes up most of the block, or they had a car in one of the parking lots that occupy the rest of it. But if I could turn back time and stand at this same corner 100 years ago, before the condos and the parking lots were built, the sidewalks would be littered with men looking to have a good time, and the streets would be lined with nothing but saloons, dance halls, and brothels. Liquor, women, gambling, and every type of vice that can be bought was for sale here, and legally, this area was one of the few red-light districts that have ever existed in the United States with a blessing from the government. Men would come here prepared to pay for sin, and by the end of the night, their pockets would be empty. The district's nickname was Storyville, and if you were standing on this corner a little over a century ago, you would have witnessed a lot more than simply men indulging in vice. You would have heard the sounds of jazz being born. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, the award-winning podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. I say award-winning because our episode about MTV was just awarded the Newhouse School of Communications Mirror Award for Best Single Story on Radio, Television, or Online Media. Receiving the Mirror Award is truly an honor. This current episode was made in cooperation with the Hogan Jazz Oral History Archive at Tulane University. The voices of the jazz musicians you're about to hear, who were in New Orleans when jazz began, come from the Hogan Archive. No one disputes that jazz was born in New Orleans, but the details of how it was born are complicated. So complicated, in fact, that the metaphor of a mother birthing a child is actually too simplistic. There are so many factors involved in the creation of jazz that it seems, at least to me, more like cooking a pot of gumbo than giving birth. Many of the gumbo recipes I looked at have close to 20 different ingredients, and a lot of those ingredients take a considerable amount of time to prepare. When ready, the ingredients are thrown into a big pot, stirred together, covered, placed over heat, and left simmering for up to an hour. Like gumbo, jazz needed all of those things, a large pot, a spoon to stir, heat underneath the pot, time to simmer, and of course, lots and lots of ingredients. Many of those ingredients came from faraway places all over the world. They never should have been all in the same city at the same time. But New Orleans, which in this gumbo metaphor is the large pot, had people from everywhere showing up at its riverbanks. Ever since the city began its life as a French colony, it was the port city that linked the Mississippi River Valley to the Gulf of Mexico, and therefore, the world. Besides slavery, the ports of New Orleans were the city's largest economic engine. The steamboats were the technology used to export cotton in many cases. New Orleans was like a huge port. In the early 19th century, it's eventually eclipsed by New York City, but it takes a long time. That's Bruce Rayburn, curator of the Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane University. And New Orleans was uh, really up until uh, World War II, the largest metropolitan area in the South. So it was important, but after the Civil War and and due to the railroads, 
its importance declined because the river was no longer the main conduit and slavery was not there anymore. In general, um, export of everything that you can think of being produced in the Mississippi River Valley in the first half of the 19th century. It's all coming through New Orleans along with the culture. New Orleans had a lot more than crops being shipped through its ports. Folk songs and work songs from middle America came down the Mississippi River. Opera and ballet from France traveled across the Atlantic to the former French colony. And music from Latin America, particularly Danzon from Cuba, came up through the Gulf of Mexico. When all these musical traditions arrived in New Orleans, they began to blend and mix together like ingredients in a gumbo. And the most important of all these ingredients was the music the slaves had brought over from West Africa. New Orleans music history goes back pretty much to its origins in 1718, and particularly the transatlantic slave trade brings in West Africans who have musical traditions. Now, under the oppression that was slavery, it doesn't mean they're just free to play anytime they feel like it, but opportunities arise, and ultimately Congo Square, which is something that's happening in the colonial period, but when the Americans take over after 1803, between 1817 and about 1845, maybe even a little later, they attempt to regulate black music and dance being performed at a place called Place Congo. On Sunday afternoons, there was a law that said African ring shouts could be performed. Every Sunday, slaves who were taken from the West African regions of Key Congo, Senegambia, and the Bight of Benin shared their music with each other in Congo Square. Their traditional styles began to mix together and coalesce into something new and unique. Nowhere else in the southern United States was anything happening like what was happening in Congo Square. All of those different African musical cultures are recombining themselves in Congo Square. And this is exceptional because due to the fear of slave rebellion, the rest of the South prohibited black culture, musical culture, from being performed. It was too dangerous, too uncontrollable. The music that grew out of those Sundays in Congo Square began to fuse together with the music that arrived through the ports. Sprinkle in a little ragtime and blues and a new music was beginning to emerge. But while this fresh sound was starting to simmer, another trend was taking root that would shake up the New Orleans social structure. The end of Reconstruction, coupled with the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision, created a system where southern states could begin passing laws aimed at segregating the population along racial lines. These new laws impacted New Orleans in a unique way. The city had a third racial class that didn't exist anywhere else in the United States called Creole. And the new segregation laws didn't recognize Creoles as being a separate class. Creole basically means as uh, native to the colonial population, a product of the New World. There are such things as white Creoles. Over time, however, because of the racial issue, Creole in the eyes of many Americans meant racially mixed. And so there are many people who identified as Creole who were viewed as in between black and white until segregation took that away from them. And so Creoles became black, and that identity, the, in other words, the three-part sort of racial social system that is typical of Central America, the Caribbean, the Gulf, also existed in New Orleans in the 19th century, but due to segregation, it disappeared. 
Before segregation, the Creole population identified mostly with the French culture of New Orleans' colonial roots. But in the 1890s, new Jim Crow laws forced the Creole population to merge with the African-American population, and Creole culture began to lose its distinctiveness. The younger generation no longer identified with traditional French culture like their parents did, and instead began to embrace African-American culture. That meant that they wanted to play the new music that they heard on the streets rather than what they heard in the opera houses. Unlike the vernacular musicians they were emulating, Creole musicians were formally educated and could read and write music. Their education gave them an edge over untrained musicians, especially when it came to composition. For many Creole musicians, like Jelly Roll Morton, John Robichaux, and Sidney Bechet, their training put them in the elite position of being sous chefs in the kitchen cooking the jazz gumbo. But the title of head chef is usually given to an African-American New Orleans native who had no formal music training at all. No historian has been able to pinpoint the exact moment in time that jazz began or who was the first musician to play it. But musicians who were in New Orleans in the early 20th century have said that one man deserves a lot of the credit. That man is a New Orleans native named Charles Bolden, better known by his nickname, Buddy. If the oral histories are correct, then Bolden was the first musician to walk up to the gumbo pot, give it a good stir, and take a taste. He is reported to have played a type of proto-jazz music that quickly evolved into jazz. Here's multi-instrumentalist Peter Bocage. I attribute it to Bolin, you know. The way that thing come about, you see, uh, Bolin was a fellow, he didn't know a mu- uh, note big as this house, you understand what I mean? Whatever they played, they, they caught or made up, you see. They made their own music, and they played it their own way, you understand? They just made, uh, made up their own ideas. They didn't know nothing about phrasing, nothing in music, no, no, no thoughts at all about music. Just go ahead and play, that's all, you understand? That's how jazz come about. The way I like to characterize him is the first jazz avatar. Whether we can claim that he was playing jazz or not, observers tell us that he was playing the blues, that he was improvising, that he was loud, that his band played with a lot of rhythm, that the kind of dances that were being done were things like slow drags, very sensual dancing, in other words. He's clearly not of the 19th century Victorian polite society mold. He's something different. Bolden would take standard songs or church hymns and rag them. He made songs swing, and he played them louder than anyone. Bolden's loud, hot musical style pulled audiences away from his competition. Other musicians, including Creole musicians who had established themselves before Bolden came on the scene, soon realized that their style had become outdated. I sort of think he needs to be part of that origin story because... The people that were interviewed who heard him, like Peter Bocage, who weren't necessarily thrilled with the idea of unlearning their musical education to become jazz musicians. They were kind of forced into it by Bolden. They resented Bolden. But he still observed Bolden, and he told a story about why Bolden became popular. Because what people wanted, what young people wanted, was that expressive sort of hot musical valence that Bolden was offering. And all these studied musicians like John Robichaux and even Pete Bocage, they weren't offering that. So they had to learn to offer that to get work. Despite being the head chef of the jazz gumbo, Bolden left very little behind. Most of the information we know about Bolden comes from stories told by people who knew him. There are no recordings of him performing that we know of, which means we'll never know exactly what his proto-jazz style sounded like 
There are also very few photographs to show us what Bolden looked like. Fortunately, people like trombone player Kid Ori have vivid memories. Yeah, he's kind of on the Miranda style you know, look, you know. His hair went black and not exactly red, but between the red and, and black. And he never called me, it was always just way out of cut he used to that way. Uh-huh. Well, he had a round face. Plumper? Yeah, plump, and plump, and not very tall. He's well built, but not a tall man. You know. uh-huh. He had a fair pretty nose. He wouldn't brag off it, but he ain't used <laughs> <laughs> And he never practiced in the house. He practiced on the box step out in the street, on the sidewalk. He blows so loud, he blow everyone out of the house when he practices. <laughs> <laughs> and he get out on the sidewalk and practice tune, and the kids are all gang around, kickballing, kickballing them. When King Bolden was at the height of his success, he began to lose his mind. Some speculate that it was drugs and alcohol. Others say a sexually transmitted disease. Some even think he blew his brains out playing the trumpet too loud. But whatever the cause, Bolden's mental condition deteriorated, and in 1906, he was arrested on charges of insanity after beating his mother-in-law with a water pitcher. Soon after, he was sent to live in a state sanitarium. Central City, where he grew up, is a violent neighborhood, but it's a racially mixed neighborhood in transition with all these things going on as segregation is sort of trying to rationalize, according to race, what New Orleans neighborhoods are supposed to be. So I think when you situate Bolden in that neighborhood and you mention the violence that defined that terrain because of segregation, that that's one of the best ways of understanding why it was that he could have a nervous breakdown playing a parade on Labor Day 1906, why he would be relegated to a state sanitarium, which was essentially like sending him to prison, based on a, a very dubious dementia prognosis related to his mental illness, which may have been a product of cocaine addiction or alcoholism, or he might have been bipolar. But it's obvious that what they really wanted to do was get a troublesome black man off the street. And that's why they sent him to Jackson, Louisiana, to the sanitarium. Bolden's is a tragic story. You know, here he is, you know, with women fighting to hold his horn and his handkerchief and his hat. One minute, and the next minute, he's a forgotten individual incarcerated until he dies in 1931. No historian ever had the opportunity to interview Bolden. But even if he didn't leave any interviews or recordings behind, he left New Orleans as a changed city. Bolden forced New Orleans music to bend toward his own style. And now, all the bands were playing that hot, raggy music everywhere. Around the same time Buddy Bolden was breaking into the New Orleans music scene, the city's government was investigating strategies to control another growing scene, the prostitution industry. The sailors and the rivermen who arrived in New Orleans' ports didn't just bring with them cultural traditions and crops to sell. They also brought a raging appetite for vice. As activity at the ports grew, prostitution grew with it, and by 1897, the city had decided that it needed to be controlled. Rather than try to use law enforcement to eradicate prostitution, New Orleans decided to regulate it. 
they took a 16-block chunk from the Treme neighborhood and zoned it for legal prostitution, gambling, and drinking establishments. Most citizens referred to this legal red-light district as simply the district. Others called it Storyville, named after Alderman Sidney Story, who drafted the legislation. It was an, an attempt at a progressive solution to an urban problem, social problem, that prostitution was spreading all over town, and you know, no one in New Orleans ever expected prostitution to go away. In fact, I'm not sure anyone on the planet ever expected prostitution to go away. But the desire is, well, I don't want it on my front porch. And so what the Storyville legislation was designed to do is to create a ghetto for prostitutes that would trap them in a zone. Prostitutes could only do their job there and pretty much had to live there as well. So it was a ghetto. The district was soon a popular destination for visitors to New Orleans, particularly men with some money in their pockets, and the businesses were designed to take every last cent. Peter Bacaz recalls how one club worked. They'd have uh, women there work on a commission basis. Every drink they sold was so much for them to see. There was dead, most of those ship fellas off the ships. There was sailors, and they come in with plenty of money, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. They'd come back there and dance the whole night and throw all the money away. When they get broke, you throw them out, you know. And that's the way those places operated. So. If a patron of the district still had money in their pocket after drinking in a saloon, they might wander back to the street looking for a brothel to spend some time in. But there were so many brothels, the variety could be overwhelming. How would a man know which one to pick? Fortunately, the businesses of the district got together and devised a solution to prevent their patrons from suffering from decision paralysis. They created a guidebook with details and addresses of all the brothels. This guidebook was called the Blue Book because of its blue cover and functioned like the Sears catalog of prostitution. It's a guide and an inventory, if you like, with some advertisements in it. But essentially, it's like, oh, you want to go shopping for flesh? Well, here's your guidebook. And it's not like there were lurid pictures, but there were addresses and names. And sometimes there'd be little annotations, so, you know, if there was a specialty involved, you would get a tip off to that. The Blue Book offered a man just about any type of woman he wanted, Creole, Cuban, Quadroon, Octoroon. Advertising can be deceptive, however, and what the man was buying wasn't always what he got. Not every woman who represented herself as a Latina, a prostitute, or a Creole was. There was a lot of racial cross-dressing going on in Storyville to meet the desires of the white males who were the clientele. So if you put up like a Cuba Libre flag in your room and, you know, did spit curls and whatnot, you could charge more money because you were more exotic or more forbidden. In the case of the, the, the white American idea of Creole is black but white-looking. So in other words, a forbidden pleasure, but still within the realm of the white aesthetic. All that is for sale at Storyville, and they knew exactly how to manipulate that clientele. One of the ways to cater to this clientele was to provide a soundtrack to their indulgences. The saloons and the cabarets wanted the best musicians for their patrons. So, if your band was good, it was easy to get work. Here's Kid Ori. You could get a job in time you want. All you do walking out your band, look, see no band. Say, where you guys going? You want to work here? What'd you pay? A dollar for my boom. Kept you eating, you know. Well, Storyville is one of the many locations where jazz emerged in New Orleans. 
What Storyville did was added a concentration of saloons and cabarets adjacent to the brothels, which expanded the number of outlets available to musicians. Having consistent work in Storyville allowed many musicians to play music full time and gave jazz artists the opportunity to really hone their craft. Even the great Louis Armstrong needed employment in Storyville before he was able to quit his day job. The district was like the heat under the jazz gumbo pot that brought all the ingredients to a simmer and allowed their flavors to coalesce. Even solo piano players were able to find work in Storyville. The brothels all had pianos and kept musicians on staff to entertain the house. If a piano player were hired by a brothel, they were given the title of professor. You're selling something that's pretty seedy when you get right down to it, as though it were really grand. And so this kind of grandiose presentation. The whole idea of the brothel is to sell fantasy. Well, that's part of the fantasy. So you get a low-down African-American vernacular player, but you present him as a professor. Just like you take some girl who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and you dress her up to become this exotic octoroon. It's the same thing, it's fantasy. But in the jazz community, to call someone a professor or fest is a sign of authentic respect. The brothels, like the saloons, were designed to extract money from a patron's pocket as fast as possible. Here's guitarist and piano player Frank Amaker. Everybody called a professor in that day, you know. In those days, all the fella did do was tell you something. Play three tunes. Now I'm playing in this house, now, in, in, in this house, several house there. Now I'll put you at nine o'clock. I'm going to play me to open the house up with a rag, some fast rag. Now I might play three tunes. If nobody don't come in those three tunes, I come on out. And I'm going back to where I was standing up at. I was sitting around, and if, if, if someone comes in while I'm gone, then the lady get on the, get on the phone and call, tell the, tell the professor to come right away, got to cut me the house. And when I come back, I walk in the house, I go to the piano, start playing a piece. After I play two, three tunes, she come to the piano, get my hat off the piano, pass it around in the crowd. Come on, give me some money for the piano player. You may tip me what whatever you put in there. I play three or four more, get my hat. I don't care if you put $10 in there. Our three more tunes come get to heaven. Stay right until you get. And if you in there all night long, long you stayed in there, keep on taking my hat and pass that to you. And if you spend a thousand dollars there, as soon as you got broke, horse come carry the door. Say, well, I'm sorry. You can't stay in here anymore. You gotta get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> What hours would you work? I'd say you probably put in at least eight hours. And so my guess is that you would probably go eight to four a.m. That was actually typical for music performance in that era. If you were white, you might be in view of the clientele. If you were black, they'd put you behind a screen so that white people wouldn't have to look at you or so that you would not be able to see the naked white women or the naked white women posing as Latinas or octoroons, because that, under segregation, that would be prohibited, which doesn't mean you wouldn't cut a hole and peek. Jelly Roll Morton talks about that. People were going there for sex, not music, but the music could contribute to the arousal factor and the sort of lead up to the big moment, along with a whole bunch of drinking. 
In the district, it wasn't just musicians who were in high demand, but also waitstaff, bartenders, dancing girls, and any job needed to run a club. Demand for workers was so high that businesses would often compete for employees. Most of the time, this competition played out as one owner poaching staff from another by offering more money. But sometimes, the competition turned violent, like on Easter night, 1913. On Franklin Street, there were two dance halls across from one another. One was named the 101 Ranch and the other the Tuxedo. The two clubs were stealing employees from one another left and right, and the tension between them was escalating. The Tuxedo was owned by two brothers from New York City named Charles and Harry Parker, and they were ready for a fight. They had been importing hired guns from New York City who were biding their time masquerading as waiters. One of those hired guns was the notorious gangster named Jip the Blood. The owner of the 101 Ranch wasn't scared of the New York club owners. He had dealt with plenty of rough characters before. His name was Billy Phillips. Jazz musician Manuel Manetta remembers Billy Phillips. Billy came down. Billy was a little man, a small little man he was. But he was a brave man. Because he ran saloon around all bad characters. He would fight and he would shoot. Everybody respected him. Well, they ran. Everything ran all right. Until the Easter comes on. Easter Monday morning. The conflict that had been brewing for a long time came to a head Easter 1913. The way the police were later able to piece together the story is like this. A waiter from the 101 Ranch who was upset over a minor dispute decided to walk across the street and begin yelling at a cashier working at the tuxedo. The owners, Harry and Charles Parker, didn't appreciate the disruption and responded by beating the waiter and throwing him out into the street. Billy Phillips, the 101 ranch owner, walked over to the tuxedo to defend his beaten waiter and exchange strong words with the Parkers. Manuel Mineta was performing in the tuxedo that night and saw Billy Phillips in the club. On Easter Sunday night, we noticed a fellow was kicking about. We could see from the high bandstand. We sat up there. We could look through the hall down the saloon. The saloon entered on Franklin Street. We could stand and look right at the bar. We saw Billy there at early part when we started. So we played, played, played. Billy was still in that bar. Billy Phillips did not stay in the tuxedo the whole night. He left for a while and came back after having a few drinks at his own club. Police reports say that he wanted to make peace with the Parkers and end that Easter season on a positive note. But when Jip the Blood, the gunman hired by the Parkers, saw Billy Phillips walk into the tuxedo for the second time that night, he slipped out the back and went around to the front door. When Jip the Blood entered, Billy Phillips was standing at the bar with his back to the front door, so Jip the Blood pulled out his gun. Around about three o'clock, we heard the guns going off. And they were running through the halls, shooting nothing but smoke. When the shooting began, Manuel Mineta and the rest of the band did the only thing they could think of, get out of that bar as fast as possible. So I had a girlfriend. We had a back window. When I shoot around, she said, Manny, throw the rope up. I take the rope. So I'm going to tie this rope to the piano. She says, tie it to the piano. Tie it anyway and come on down the rope. We happen to get off the bandstand. It goes out the back. And you go right out to Liberty Street, right opposite the corner there. It was Groschel's where Joe Oliver was playing. 
So Manetta climbed down the rope, and he and his girlfriend slipped out the back door. When they got outside, they saw Jip the Blood run out of the tuxedo, bleeding, and head across the street to another club called Groeschel's. And Jip the Blood, he was shot. He ran through the hall, ran across the street, fell in that place, in Groeschel's. Fell down, laying on the floor. Jip the Blood fell on the floor of Groeschel's and lay there for a while before someone picked him up and got him medical attention. Jip the Blood survived the shooting, but Billy Phillips and Harry Parker were not so lucky. Harry Parker got killed. Billy Phillips got killed. The double murder of Billy Phillips and Harry Parker was a front-page news story in New Orleans newspapers the next day. Moral reformers who wanted to close the district used the event to rally support for their cause. There was a concern growing throughout the population that the district was bringing unwanted violence to their city. It got a lot of coverage in the press, and it led to police repression. So in other words, it was like an invitation to white authority to step in and fix things and clamp down on this experiment that looks like it's going wrong. There are people like Frank Abaker, the piano player, for example, who really sort of date the decline of the district to that double murder. The outcry from citizens over the shooting motivated police to begin cracking down on the district. Laws that were once treated as optional, like the Sunday closing law, were now enforced. Not even a sizable bribe could make the police raids stop. The raids were bad for business, but they didn't ruin it, and neither the police nor voting citizens had the power to shut the district down. Only politicians had that power, and they weren't about to shut down a commercial district that was generating so much money. I'm sure lots of it was trickling down to them. The police raids and the public protests were more of a chronic annoyance than a legitimate threat. It would take the power of the federal government and entry into the First World War before Storyville faced any real danger. So what the entry into World War I did was to empower people like Josephus Daniels and the Department of the Navy to begin looking at the proximity of vice districts to where servicemen were located. And that became the leverage they needed to close it down. In other words, the federal government closed down the district. Martin Berman, the mayor, wanted to defend it. He opposed that. It was profitable. There were a lot of people making money there. Despite the mayor's protest, the Navy's fears that their servicemen docked in New Orleans would have a little too much fun in Storyville won out. In November of 1917, the district was officially closed down. The prostitutes, brothel owners, and saloon keepers moved their businesses out of the district. And when those businesses left, nothing moved into the neighborhood to fill the void. Storyville pushed out a population that was a residential population uh, and changed the demographics in the district dramatically in terms of ratio of like businesses to residences. It created something that was kind of unnatural in terms of the organic development of neighborhoods in New Orleans. And when everything got sucked out of it, I think they're still trying to mend. So many of these experiments do that. You know, they don't factor in the people and the neighborhood fabric that they're tampering with. So some harm was done. They took a vibrant neighborhood that was an entertainment district already, and they they jacked it up and overdrove it, and then they created a kind of dead zone afterwards. The New Orleans government decided to use that dead zone to try out a new type of social experiment. 
1940, many of Storyville's remaining buildings were deemed substandard by the city, paving the way for their demolition and the building of a public housing development called the Iberville Housing Projects. A couple of blocks northwest of where Basin Street intersects with Iberville, the corner where I'm currently standing, is where the housing projects are located. After Hurricane Katrina, the city refused to reopen the projects. The 16 blocks that Storyville occupied are once again a dead zone and continue to be a major source of controversy for New Orleans residents. There is, however, a new housing development being built here that hopefully will revive the neighborhood. Unlike the buildings in Storyville, the musical form that grew up in the district survived its closing. Jazz may have escaped, but not before becoming covered in Storyville's residue, a residue that would forever associate jazz with drinking, licentious dancing, prostitution, and the seedy underworld. This stigma shaped jazz's evolution for decades, and that begs the hypothetical question. What would jazz have been like if Storyville never existed? Well, would jazz has emerged as a viable New Orleans idiom? Yeah, with or without it. Would it have had the sexual trappings and connotations that it developed, which I think account for part of its appeal for these very young people we're talking about? One of the reasons they like jazz is because it was more sexual music, that it became indicative of the sexual liberation they were after, the freedom they were after, the expressiveness that appealed to them. Whether they were true or not, associations with vice districts and jazz were there. Uh, the word jazz itself was thought to be a metaphor for sexual, for copulation. I think that, that that imagery was very important in terms of selling jazz early on. But it was important to sell it to young people, but it was also a marker that attracted resistance from older people who still had that those concepts of Victorian propriety and were defending the old standards. While the district was winding down, the pioneers of jazz, like the ones whose voices you've heard in this episode, began to pursue lucrative career opportunities elsewhere, in other cities. Musicians like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, Jelly Roll Morton, and Kid Ory moved to cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, and eventually New York. The causes of the diaspora, as it's now referred to, are debated amongst historians. Some believe that the closing of Storyville triggered the flight to other cities. But when you look at the musicians who left on a case-by-case basis, the evidence to support that theory is lacking. Bruce Rayburn recently concluded his own research on the topic. I did not find one individual who specifically left New Orleans as a result of the closing of Storyville in November 1917. There are many reasons musicians left New Orleans. Kid Ory left because a club owner was using his political connections to stifle his band. Louis Armstrong and King Oliver left to pursue lucrative careers in Chicago. But when these musicians left New Orleans behind, they left as master chefs who had perfected their signature dish, a finely tuned jazz gumbo, and they were ready to share it with the rest of the world. Amazingly, though, they had no idea that they were the only ones with the recipe. Until these musicians left New Orleans, they didn't know that jazz was unique to their home city, and nowhere else did people know how to rag a tune or swing a beat. Here's clarinetist Albert Nicholas. When I left New Orleans, I thought it was that type of music all over the world. And I was disappointed when I heard a lot of great musicians playing dance music, you know. They were playing without, without that beat. What do you call a beat now, you know? They were playing the notes, 
But they weren't swinging. And they didn't, they didn't have it in them. The pioneer jazz musicians you've heard on this episode, Kid Ori, Manuel Mineta, Albert Nicholas, Peter Bocage, and Frank Amaker, all passed away a few decades ago. Their voices were able to be included in this episode because in 1958, a man named Richard Allen, who was a Tulane graduate student at the time, decided to begin recording oral histories for his thesis. William Hogan, the chair of the Tulane Department of History, recognized that Richard Allen's work was bigger than simply a thesis and helped transform Allen's recordings into an official library archive, now named the Hogan Jazz Archive. The library has over 2,000 rolls of recording tape filled with oral histories. Many are available online. Bruce Rayburn, the voice you've heard on this episode, is the current curator of the archives. Thank you, Bruce, for coming on the show. For more information about these oral histories, you can visit jazz.tulane.edu. That's it for this episode of Between the Liner Notes. If you would like to listen to another great podcast, I recommend Your Story Here. In each episode of Your Story Here, the host, Lizzie Peabody, puts a microphone in front of random people on the street and asks them personal questions about their lives. Amazingly, these strangers really open up, and what they say is revealing. I recommend beginning with episode four, Beauty School is a Little Outdated. Between the Liner Notes is produced by me, Matthew Billy, and distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. Special thanks to Elena W. Herbert, Andrew Bottomley, Jason Silverman, and Laura Vandiver. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at our website, betweenthelinernotes.com. Feel free to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll talk more on the next Between the Liner Notes. <laughs>